welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. And we're going to conclude our thinking and reasoning and dialogue together around a subject that I think is so essential for us as Christians to really step further and deeper into it. And that subject matter is how can I, how can you, how should we, how can God equip us and enable us to live beyond ourselves? Have you noticed that left to your own devices, it all becomes about you? Hello? In fact, if you're not careful, you can make everything about you. And I've heard all kinds of nuances of that in, in this generation where people, they add these words, these expressions to their vocabulary that in my generation didn't exist. Let me explain one of them to you. Me time. I don't know where that expression came from, but I surely know that that wasn't one that my mother used. <laughs> Me time. We have slowly, <laughs> we have slowly drifted, as the scriptures said we would, into an era or a cultural nuance that without examination will actually lead us astray in these end times because what God is looking for is not people preoccupied with themselves. And it says in the scriptures that at the end times as they draw nearer and dearer, perhaps you can close those doors for me, gentlemen, people will become lovers of themselves. And so we are in this dispensation where more and more and more our investments are becoming highly self-serving or self-orientated. And um, I hear people say things like this, I'm leaving a church, maybe not this one, perhaps this one too, because I don't get my needs met in this place. Now, that may sound like quite an innocent expression, but when you think about it, whoever told you or informed you that this whole thing existed for your needs to be met. In fact, we are all called in moments like this to be clear about what happens on a Sunday, and that is that my needs may well not be met. And if I come with that expectation, I could leave very disappointed. But here's the greater invitation, that I come to live beyond myself. The Bible uses this phrase, bringing my sacrifice. You see, if it's not difficult or painful, then it's not really a sacrifice. Bringing my sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Does that sound like you getting your needs met? Well, actually, indirectly, as you bless God, God will bless you. But the starting point of all of our gatherings is not that all of your needs get met. The starting point of all of our gatherings is that our need to live beyond ourselves, and we do that when we worship and adore and sacrifice and celebrate Jesus, when we put ourselves in that place, we position ourselves in the hand of God for all the grace and mercy that God wants to give to us. You and I are called as Christians not to be preoccupied with the trinity of me, myself, and I, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as I live and breathe, I'm 62 today, I know I don't look at Chanda that, that would have been a good place to say something, but that smile says everything. Okay. 
delusional old man, I think that, <laughs> you know, as I get older, I realize that there's something of a shift in society towards a preoccupation with ourselves. You know, I was raised in a house where my father struggled a lot with mental illness, and um, one of the things that I think he was unable to do, and it affected all our lives, my brothers here know this, is he couldn't think beyond himself. He had such an overwhelming sense of what he needed or what he required or what was necessary. And all of us, the truth is, all of us had to walk around that sensitively because if we didn't allow that to happen when he was in his very dark points, then all kinds of other things would happen that were not pleasant. And I think if you think of depression or, or any of those things, they do have a tendency to be very me-centered, don't they? You're talking to me, you just... Yeah, it's me, it's very me-centered. Now, of course, I know the difference between emotional depression, clinical depression. I've been around a long time. I've seen both, and there are different things you could say into both those arenas. But in our world, where anxiety seems to rule and reign, is there not some truth to say that when you have that kind of experience in life, self-preservation, Control, you have to control what happens around you because you can't be made vulnerable. And it's an unrealistic expectation to think that you can control everything. Do you know there's only one legitimate form of control on the earth? Let me help you with this. It's called self-control. I don't see that on fridge magnets or car bumper stickers. You know, we can't control our environment. Talk to me. You can't. With the best will in the world, you, you can decide, you know, you're going to be um, the kind of person that, that, you know, is not going to allow other people to affect you badly. And then I guarantee you, by the time home time comes at work, you'll have been affected badly. Because you can't, you can't control what other people say and what other people do. And living with, with the notion that we can is exhausting. So many people are exhausted trying to batten down the hatches and control their lives. But the byproduct of that kind of thinking is that it, you put yourself at the center of everything. And consequently, when you're at the center of everything, you have a particular viewpoint that doesn't necessarily partner with God's. So beyond you, there's a whole world. Can I say, I'm going to say this to somebody this morning. Not everyone in it is bad and trying to get you. Okay? There's some good people in this world. Yeah? Beyond you and your needs, there are people in this room who probably have greater needs. Sitting next to you could be a tragedy dressed up in a suit. And you would never know from the outside that person's reality. And if all I'm thinking about in any environment I'm in is me, how do I feel about this? What do I gain from this? How does this bless me or otherwise? I am not living the way God has created or called me to live, which is to be living with a perspective that's so much bigger. You know, you and I have been called to a big life. Hello? And if you're thinking about you all the time, your life, trust me, and the people around it will give up eventually, your life will get smaller, 
and smaller and smaller. And here's the thing, if you go searching for you, God help you. Because when you find you, it maybe won't be all that. So, where is humanity at its best? When people live beyond themselves. When they're living for something greater or something bigger than just their own needs. You know, I've been around this a long time and people say, you know, I'm an intercessor pastor. I say, what do you pray for? Well, my family and... Oh, you're not an intercessor. Please don't think, because an intercessor prays for the benefit of those that they might never know. You're praying for your family. That's a good start, but you know, there's a wider lens. Do you know whenever you do this on your phone? Do you know that on your, has anyone got an Apple phone? I think this happened, look at this, this is a new thing arthritic fingers have never done before. What we do is we enlarge the picture so much that we are at the center of it. And what we have to do is this. We have to take the picture down and say, well, I am experiencing this, but I'm experiencing this in the context of a great story that God is trying to tell here on the earth. And I might just meet some people if I'm not thinking about me, myself, and I might just meet some people who can really add something exceptional to the way I think or the way I live. If I have eyes that can see, I might have a heart that gets liberated. I was in London for 18 months. I talk about tunnel vision. I don't know how some of those people got on or off the tube because they didn't look to the left or to the right. And if you sat on the tube, has anyone been to London? Nobody looks at anybody. They're like this. But of course, you see, I don't come from London. So I turn to the person on my right-hand side and say, you going anywhere nice today? <laughs> the shock and horror on those people's faces. People, someone's talking to me on the tube. Someone's interacting. They must be mentally ill in some way, shape, or form. I remember Jane telling me this story. We lived in this lovely little place. It was kind of just outside of London called Heronsgate. And Jane would walk the dogs. We've got three dogs. We had two at that time. And uh, she would go out early in the morning to walk the dogs. And this gentleman, just duffel coat up, all the, the things in cold weather. And she walks past him. And she says, good morning. Well, you would have thought that she'd shot him with a gun. He was so incensed by someone saying good morning to him that he came right up to Jane and said, you shouldn't speak to people. <laughs> you shouldn't speak to people when you're out walking your dogs. Ah, we're wowing, but actually the epidemic has hit Birmingham. Okay, the cancer is everywhere of me, myself, and I, and I've noticed that this city, which I always would say to everybody everywhere I've ever lived, that's a really friendly city, Birmingham. It's not like it used to be. Why? Because in the busyness and the haste and the excess of our lives, we have become very narrow. We have to get where we need to get. And we'll be tired if anyone gets in the way of that. We don't really mind pushing in in the queue. Why? 
Because I've got to get what I need to get. I am worth it. I deserve it. Now, here's the problem when it comes to the church. If I actually think like that, then I have a very weird relationship with Jesus. Because you don't deserve it. And you never could. In fact, if you got what you deserved, it would be eternal separation in a place called Hades or hell. You make your choice. The same place, differently. Okay? That's what you actually deserve. I deserve to be treated in a particular way? Really? Okay. Well, what measure of that would you like? According to the way you've treated others? Should we start with that measure? Because if we're going to be honest about what we deserve, that's probably where we need to start. Yeah? You know the best place to see entitlement in church? Do you want to know? I'm going to give you a little snapshot into a pastor's view. The buffet. <laughs> the buffet. Suddenly at the buffet, the last is going to be first. They're not waiting for the glory or the return of Jesus. <laughs> and those who come first are on a mission. And that mission is to eat everything like a swarm of locusts that they can see or have without much thought or care to anyone who's coming after them. I've served a few times on the buffet. If they let me, they don't let me because I'm mean with the portions. You can only have three beans with your breakfast served. <laughs> Those other five are for the next five people that are coming. <laughs> and, and people look at you if you say, do you mind if we just save a little bit? I don't know what that means, but I feel it's probably not good. Do you know what I'm saying? I think it's the kind of response you wouldn't want explained. <laughs> so all around us, in just about every facet of our lives and society, we have been trained and conditioned to believe that we live at the center of everything. That's why worship is such a good thing, because it reminds us that this is not our story. This is the great story of God, and we are but a bit player in it. We have just a small part to contribute. So we've been walking around this subject. It's a tender one, I know, and a lot of people have come and said to me, I feel a little challenged by the things that we're talking about. Well, just in case you didn't know, that was the original idea, so we're quite happy that those are some of the nuances. And we have to be challenged, because if we're not challenged, we'll fall asleep and we'll not realize some of the things that we need to see. And there's a little scripture that kind of I hang my hat on, and it's Revelation 20. I think it's 20 or 21. Forgive me, don't write it down. It says, they overcame him. Okay, so that little phrase there talks about the power in the church, amongst the church, to annihilate the works of the devil 
They overcame him, and listen to the two ways they overcame him. By the blood of the Lamb, the certainty of Jesus Christ at the center of all of humanity's story to bring life, not you or me at the center of that, but Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb, and the word of their testimony. And that phrase there isn't that in 1974 you prayed a prayer in some meeting somewhere. That word actually means the current reality of the intimate relationship that they have with God. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, okay, the reality of Jesus, and the reality of that experience working itself out in their life today. Today, that's your testimony. What happened in 1974 is your history. And this phrase, it drives me mad because I see the opposite so often in society. And they loved not their life, even unto death. So that kind of a church is what the Spirit of God wants to produce. That kind of a church that loves not its life to death, but has through that sacrifice and service and certainty about Jesus and the reality of His presence with them has the power to resist and stop the enemy from doing terrible things in their lives. That's going to take a bit of work, church. That's going to take a little bit of intentionality. That's going to take me maybe moving out of some comfort zones to live in places and spaces where something is required of me that I feel unable, so often feel unable, to be able to produce. And that's where I'm supposed to live. I am supposed to live beyond me. You will never see the power of God working in and through your life unless you make a choice to have a big vision because you have a big God and this is a great big world and his kingdom is so vast we're going to spend the rest of our lives exploring it. My God is able to do immeasurably more than I ask or imagine, listen to, this is the turning point, not God's ability, according to his power that is at work in me. Okay? Of course God can do. Of course God is great. Of course God can change the world. But he has subjected that transforming power according to his power, which he's given me by the Spirit, but have I activated it? Have I utilized it? Have I explored it to its fullest extent? And you cannot explore that power living in the paradigm of me, myself, and I. You will find yourself dry. You will find yourself weakened spiritually. You will find yourself without hope or expectation. You will have very little joy because you were created to live in the expansive reality of God, not the minute, insignificant, significantly, whatever that word is, of yourself. It's my birthday. I'll cry if I want to. Okay. And when you live beyond you, you see him. When you live beyond you, you experience him. Nehemiah chapter 2. We will be finished if you will permit me by quarter past one. It's my birthday. I want an extra five minutes from you. 
Okay. Reading from 1 to 10, we're going to quickly walk through this scripture where this man is a nobody, he's a nobody, he has no title, he has no sense of importance, begins to be raised up by God to do incredible things. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? Why you look so sad? What's that song? When you are not ill, this can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. That's always a good shout, isn't it? Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will the journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asheph, keeper of the royal park, so he could give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city walls and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me and the king granted my requests, so I went to the governor of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters and the king sent me with the army, an army of officers and cavalry with me. Verse 10, when Sambalat the Haranite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. The first thing I want to suggest to you is this. Nehemiah was a guy who did a job. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a king. He wasn't an important person in the eyes of society or the world. He was just a bloke with a job, just a guy with a job. And that job, in many, many ways, reflects to us the reality that God can take us in what we think is very ordinary and do something extraordinary with it. You see, I have long been persuaded that if I can do something ordinary, extraordinarily, God is training me to do something extraordinary that feels quite ordinary. In his job, this man, Nehemiah, nobody had heard of him, goes every day to work, and his job is to be prepared to die. As a cupbearer to the king, his whole sole reason for existence was that he would stop the king from being poisoned. And of course, how would he find out if there was poison in the king's wine? He would find that out by drinking it himself. So as he gets ready and comes every day to his workplace, this man has already been conditioned to live beyond himself. He, in the orderliness of his life, God has done something extraordinary. And as you look at that, you realize that there is nothing ordinary when it comes to our lives. In the ordinariness of your job, God is doing something extraordinary for you. 
You may not see it, you may not feel it, you may not recognize it, but actually nothing that you do could ever possibly just be ordinary because you have an extraordinary God who's at work inside of you. Can anyone say amen to that? You see, I look back at my life, all those social clubs in Manchester and Liverpool and the Northeast, I did not know that I was being trained by God for the destiny that one day he would call me to, and that was to be his servant and to minister in places like this. Do you know how many tomatoes I've dodged? And some of them were in the tins. Mind you, we'd all be grateful for a tomato now, wouldn't we? God help us, what's the world come to? Okay, <laughs> I think some are selling on eBay for 50 quid a tin or something. Tomatoes, not that I'm preoccupied with making a profit. Thanks, Jane, for showing me where those tomatoes were in the cupboard. But the, but the reality is, as I drove up the motorway to the back of the bank club, somewhere in the armpit of Manchester or the northeast, I did not know that in my history, God was making me ready for my destiny. And, and you might have a, a job you think is unglamorous and doesn't really have any great significance in the kingdom of heaven, but I'm telling you that God is training you in your ordinary and making you ready for your extraordinary. It may look like a dead-end job to you. There's no dead end in the kingdom of God. In the mundane, God is going to do something majestic. In the ordinary, God is shaping you for the great extraordinary exploits he has for you. You just have to see that differently. Nehemiah had already been rooted in the truth that he could live beyond himself. Now, parents, listen to me for a second. Okay, I'm an old guy now, and I avoid children. I'm one of those people that wants to go on holiday to Warner, where no children... Have you seen that advert? I bear witness in my spirit that that would be a good choice for me. But if you've got children... I want to just point something out to you. The Bible says, what you sow, you will reap. Am I right? So when they become adults, and they're not full of courage, and they're full of self-importance, and entitlement is at the core of their life, I want to just highlight to you, somewhere back here, you did not sow what you needed to sow. I forget the first time we took Emily, our beautiful daughter, to a nursery in Northfield. And in our house, she played with all of her toys, and everything belonged to her. And of course, when she arrived at two or three years of age in the nursery in Northfield, she thought everything belonged to her. And there was a young boy there who thought everything belonged to him, because he had the same devotedness offered him, and princess syndrome reared its ugly head, and I think she snatched it out of his hands, and he, <laughs> gave her the right hand of fellowship, <laughs> and as a father, I tell you what, I wanted to give him the right hand of fellowship, thank God for Self-control. <laughs> but we're laughing, but you have to teach 
every child to live beyond themselves. You can't expect when they're adults, if they've never been trained in the ways of God, and this is a way of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became even a servant unto death. If you don't teach your child how to live beyond themselves, you are raising a monster who one day, one day, will make sure that your life exists for their benefit. And here's, it gets even worse. I'm sorry I'm offending people. I don't mean to. It gets even worse. They will have children, and you will become the parents of those children because you didn't raise your child to be an adult. You indulged them in their childhood. Now, please, don't leave the church over this. You can have a different opinion. Of course, I know I'm right. I'm the pastor. Okay? <laughs> But the reality is, this epidemic did not start yesterday. It started 15, 20, 30 years ago when my generation, I think we're called the baby boomers, okay? We wanted a better life for our children. We wanted them not to have to go through the things that we went through. And in, in a desire to do something right, we got something wrong. And that's something wrong is this. I cannot protect my daughter from challenges. No matter what environment she is in, somebody may well just disagree with her. And if I don't teach her how to live beyond herself, she's going to presume that she has the superior right to have what she wants. God help the man that marries her if that is the kind of perception she has. And thank God she doesn't. Not because of me, because this lady down here is a good mother. I don't know how many couples I have pastored and prayed for where me syndrome is the problem. Well, you know, pastor, I would like sexual intimacy five times a week, and she's always got a headache. <laughs> okay, that's really good. Well, I try and say this to them. Well, Jane and I have reached the fullness of sexual compatibility. We both have a headache. <laughs> <laughs> We talk to princess, and princess says, Pastor, I feel all he wants me for is, is my physicality. You know, he, he, he just wants all the time. He wants all the time, and he wants all the time. I said, darling, there'll come a day when he's not interested. Make the most of it while you've got it. <laughs> we just have to tame the lion a little bit. And It's true, isn't it? When you're young, you can't keep away from each other, and when you're old, just, you're watching telly in separate rooms. <laughs> and we always say, That's, I just need some me time. Parents, if you don't plant it now, you won't reap it then. And you've got to help your children to live beyond themselves. Have I labored that too much? Second thing I notice about this story is in chapter 1, another person from the tribe of Israel who's been raised under Babylonian exile, has grown up with the heritage of being a Jew, but has never really lived in the context 
of Jerusalem, comes to Nehemiah and he tells him what's happened to the city of Jerusalem. Tells him, the walls are destroyed, the, the gates are wide open, they've burnt them all and people are coming in and out and stealing everything that belongs to our people. There's no peace, there's no rest and many have had to flee for their lives. But that person who is actually probably of a similar age to Nehemiah, definitely of a similar heritage, does something completely different than Nehemiah does. That person in chapter 1 gets back on with their life, doing what they need to do. But because Nehemiah has been trained to live beyond himself, his heart cannot rest until he starts to understand what part he has to play in resolving the problem. What is it about humanity? Two people can see the same catastrophe. One does nothing about it, and the other is moved to uproot their family and go and serve. What is it about us that for some of us, we cannot rest until we do what God has shown us to do? I'll tell you what's about us. If you are indifferent to the pain around you in this world, you probably have me syndrome. If you can walk past somebody whose life is destroyed on a street corner, you've got to question what's going on in your heart. I think we have become so desensitized to pain and trauma and difficulty. And the Bible prophesies this. It says that in the end times, people's love will grow cold. And we all think that's just about our love for God, but actually our love for our fellow brothers and sisters is at an all-time low. And the reason for that is we are bombarded with all kinds of images of disasters and problems and difficulties, and our souls have become desensitized to the broken pain and discomfort of another human being. And so I can watch the disaster in Turkey while I'm eating my dinner and not miss a single chicken nugget. If only I had chicken nuggets. On a strict diet, seafood, I see food and I eat it. That's simple. So, do you think God wants to show us something? Do you think we need to see something? When I look at Jesus' ministry, I realized his whole perspective was about living beyond himself. And it says of Jesus, listen to these words, that when he saw the crowd, he saw them from this viewpoint. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And listen to what happened from that viewpoint, because he could see beyond his own comfort, beyond his own tiredness, beyond his own world. He said he was moved with compassion, and he fed them. He fed them. Church, when was the last time you or I were moved with compassion? I don't mean stirred, because you can be shaken and not moved. You can think something is terrible and do nothing about it. Hello? It's hard, this, isn't it? And we've got to be switched on in our world because we want to be those people who overcame by the blood of the Lamb the word of the testimony, and love not their own selves. That the trinity of me, myself, and I had caved in. And they lived and served 
Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what God's doing in the church. That's what God's trying to raise up a whole bunch of people. When I was in Glasgow, we had a building project. The pastor at the time, Kevin, said, we don't want the building to shut down. We'll carry on with all the services. And he's probably watching online because he watches in. Thank you. Because you were swanning around the world, visiting all kinds of exotic places. And we were in Glasgow in the middle of winter with tarpauling on the roof that flapped. I thought the whole thing was going to come off at times. Scaffolding down the middle of the church and I'm talking big scaffolding, okay? And those two, two heaters that pumped out enough carbon monoxide to poison a whole nation, and we were singing, Oh God, how great thou art. <laughs> if you wanted drama, there was drama. It was not the Holy Spirit, it was the wind and the rain. One time I'm worshiping and I open my eyes, think it's God, and the tarpaulins come off. And the irony of it was, we're singing, let it rain, let it rain, open the floodgates of heaven. I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, you're here, you're here, you're here. (laughs) And the builders who were working on the church, they didn't think it was a church. It was just a building site. So they left their newspaper open on a very opportune page and cans everywhere of beer. I mean, Kevin would have turned in his grave if he had died. He would have turned in his grave to think that in the sanctuary somebody was drinking alcohol. But these boys having a quick swig at the lunchtime with their sandwiches and their packets left and their papers. And you know, I would come in every Saturday. I had to come in early and I'd be cleaning it all up and taking the rubble up off the floor. And our worship pastor, man of God, he'd come in and he'd step over it. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, hallelujah. Now, I don't know if you've ever struggled with a condition called martaplexy. Have you ever had martaplexy? Will you think you're the only one who's doing everything? Come on, somebody nudge somebody, because I know they're in, you're in here. Okay, I know you're in here. I would look at that. Come, Holy Spirit, come. And if it was a cartoon, there would have been steam. coming out of my ears. And you know, he was oblivious. Why? Because two people can say the same thing. They can see the same thing. But it didn't bother him. Really bothered me. And you know what? He began to bother me as well. Like, are you a Christian? Do you love Jesus? How can you step over page three and carry on? Come, Holy Spirit. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Do you ever get into judgments with other people? Because they don't feel what you feel about what you feel it about. Well, let me give you some good advice. If you are bothered about something, is there anybody bothered about anything? You probably should not be thinking in these terms, God, help me to do something that I feel really good about. Perhaps your complaint is your assignment. You are bothered about something. Start there talking to God. Because as you recognize why you're bothered, God will begin to show you what that means. Your complaint is your destiny. You know, as a church pastor, people come to me and they say, Pastor, I think we should do more things for the youth. 
I said, let me guess. Have you got teenagers? Yeah, all right then. <laughs> Pastor, I think we do more things for the kids. Oh, how many have you got? Three. No wonder you want another program on another night because you want to be free. <laughs> free, please, Jesus. Let someone have them. And that's the truth. We live from ourselves. But there's been very few times, I can count them on one hand, maybe in 30-something years of ministry, where somebody didn't have an invested interest in something, and they came and they said to me, somebody should do something about that. And guess what? What I say to them is, go for it. Start it. We'll follow you. We'll follow your lead. What are you bothered about? Is it third world debt or two-thirds world debt as it's becoming? Are you, are you bothered about social injustice? Your complaint is your mission. Own it. Ask God about it. Allow it to impact the way you think and the way you act. Does racial hatred bother you? Because it really should. And if that bothers you so much that it turns up in the way you think and the way you act, then thank God for you. Because we want rid of that. Amen? If you look at young people and you think somebody should do something, the world is a, a, a dreadful place, all of the youth clubs are closing down, that's you. That's you. God is speaking to you. And you were hoping for, thus saith the Lord, I think you're wonderful. Thus saith the Lord, I can't get enough of you. Just saith the Lord, you are the apple of my eye. And God is saying, whoa, see that thing that really irks you? I'm showing you something of my heart because it irks me. Now arise and shine and move towards it. Because your destiny is attached to that reality. When it bothers you, you should pay attention to it. I have this terrible problem with the television at the moment. I think I should become a newsreader. I watch the television and I think, what is the agenda that's being pushed in society? In just about every which way possible, there's an agenda being pushed in society. And I can see it. I can see it with my eyes. And I end up in discussions. Let's call them that. Discussions. <laughs> oh, Dad, you're always whining about that. Do you know that while you sit watching what's happening on your television, there is a narrative being painted for you of a world that Jesus does not recognize. He just does not recognize that. And the abnormal has become normal. And unless you're abnormal, you're not normal. And if you're normal, you're irrelevant. And I don't even know what normal is. I'm still trying to work it out. Thank God I've got a wife who tells me everything I need to know. Tells me what I want to eat, when I want to eat, how I want to eat. Thank God for wives. I go to reach for the fridge and she said, you don't need that. Well, thank you for that. Because <laughs> I thought I did, and I'm so grateful <laughs> that you're in my life to tell me. <laughs> when I parked there, you want to park there? You want to park over there? I said, no, I'd like to park here. No, this isn't a good parking space. Park over there. That's a better parking space. Thank God. I don't know how I managed without her when she's not with me. And then when I get frustrated, she says, you're a bit angry, aren't you? Got, have you got anger issues? Have you got issues? No, I've got wife issues. I haven't got anger issues. Because here's the truth. When you're not with me, I park wherever I want, and nobody says anything. 
I feel perfectly fine about it. <laughs> what bothers you? What really bothers you? And not just in here, it turns up out here. As he goes to the king, the king sees he's bothered. I think we should turn up in society a little bothered by something. There should be some recognition from those around us that this matters to us. It's important. All the time, Nehemiah, in a job, not realizing it, has been positioned by God for something extraordinary. He didn't put himself there. Somehow God engineered this position for him. And he had the ear of the king. And this king somehow looked at this man and saw on him his countenance. It's an old-fashioned word that means his body language. Let's use that. In many ways, was low because of his people. Now remember this. Please understand this. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah had heard stories about the city of Jerusalem. But his heritage, I'm speaking to someone here today, had not been changed or maligned by his context to the point that it didn't matter to him. If you're from Nigeria here this morning, pray that God brings into the fore the right man for that nation. God has greatness attached to that nation. And we don't want someone, I don't want, I'm not even Nigerian, although I do question myself sometimes. I don't want, I don't want someone in power over that great nation who's corrupt. Amen? Are you bothered? Be bothered enough to pray. Be bothered enough for your countenance to be visible to the people around you because it matters to God. The nations are the inheritance of the saints. It matters to God. You bothered about the demise of this nation? Get bothered about it. You're from here. You have a responsibility here to be bothered. It's not okay. Certain things are not okay. It's not okay for certain religious bodies to have their own set of rules that completely supersede the law of this land. It's not okay. And it should turn up on your face. Now, I'm not asking you to be aggressive. I'm not asking you to be confrontational. Or am I? Yes, I am actually. I want you to get on your face before God and take your governmental anointing and break some strongholds in a nation that if that doesn't happen in 10 years, 20 years' time, will be so unrecognizable to you and I that you will not be able to speak the name of Jesus publicly, let alone declare that He is the way of salvation. And while we've been asleep, that's been happening. Can you hear me? Get bothered. Let it turn up on your face. Nehemiah has been positioned by God. And in this position, and with this I'm closing, be patient with me. We've had a lot of other things happening in the meeting. He has the ear of the man who has all the authority. And consequently, as a result of the way he has served in that context, he has favor. And that favor is the leverage that God is about to use to change the destiny of a nation. 
He has no right. He has no entitlement to it. But he has earned the king's ear. You see, when you go to work, you need to stop thinking, people should appreciate me. See, that was a me thing. You need to say, God, who has the authority in this place to release your kingdom purposes? You need to be strategic in the way you pray and say, God, you know, even if they don't like me, I'm staying until your kingdom comes. I'm staying here. Or they can say whatever they like because I have destiny flowing through my veins. There's no accident for me. I'm here appointed of God. I've been placed here with purpose. And there is a provision for me in this place that I am not leaving until I receive. Come on, my African friends, you know these things. These are truths you live with. No accidents in the kingdom of God. You are where you are by the grace of God. And let the grace of God find for you the favor that is indeed supplied for you says that God gave him favor with the king of Persia. This is a man who murdered his brother to get on the throne, by the way. Have you ever tried to have favor with people like that? Probably wasn't nice or polite. And listen to what the king asks him. And I'm going to end with this. What do you want? What do you want, Chanda? What do you want? If God, with all power, came to you today and said, what do you want? What would you say? See, if my responses in this moment are about me, and my life, and my provision, I'll say this, and for fear of being sacked, I have evidenced my immaturity with that response. And there are so many people, after 30 years, they're still praying for themselves. And yet the Bible says, my God will supply all my needs, and you were hoping that you would have no need. And you've kept praying and praying and praying till all your needs were met. How about carrying the needs of a nation? How about expanding your lens to say, this city needs you, Jesus, and I'm going to keep praying until those needs are met. I'm going to keep expanding the territory where your kingdom can move powerfully by not becoming preoccupied with me. I'm going to pray for those who don't know you. I'm going to pray for people who don't like you. Do you ever pray for your enemies? No, I don't mean this prayer, God smite them. <laughs> not, that's not actually a prayer at all. That's a judgment, by the way. Do you know that the test of your maturity? Let me tell you this. This is an acid test. If you can look at your enemy in the eye and want the best for them, you are walking in the fullness of who Jesus is. That's the truth. And Jesus says very clearly to us that we are to love our enemies. I only pray for people I like. And you pray for people who like you. We're no better than each other. But this is the test. This is living beyond ourselves. 
God, can I look at somebody who has done that to me? And in my heart of hearts, call down your greatness and your blessing and your fullness on their life. Not through gritted teeth. <laughs> Jesus, will you bless those people? <laughs> You've done it too. That's why you're laughing. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, you love them. I don't, but you do. That's not the heart of God. To look at your enemy. Stand up for me, Judy. She's not my enemy. She's my dear friend. Where everything that I ever wanted has been taken by you. And I look into your eyes and I say, Jesus, <laughs> fill her. Fill her to overflowing with your love. Fill her to overflowing with your goodness. This is living beyond me. What I feel, what I want, what I need, what I imagine I expect or should have or be entitled to. I'm looking beyond me and I'm seeing this gorgeous woman created in the image of God. And I'm saying to her, God, bless her. Bless, if I never get a blessing, if I never get the freedom from what's happened, if I never get the healing I'm looking for, I do not want to be small in here, God. I want to have a large life and I want you to use me to bless people who have even cursed me or ridiculed me or hurt me or damaged me because I want to be like you, Jesus. For while we were yet still sinners, while we were enemies and haters of God, Christ Jesus came and gave his life for you. That is what that looks like. Jesus, if you can come down for me when I hated you, then I can go to them who hate me, God. And I can show love like you showed love and I can show mercy like you showed mercy and I can let my life be laid down for the sake of my brother because that's what you did for me Jesus that's spiritual maturity that's what that looks like not Jesus bless her that's not spiritual maturity that's stupidity and God looks thank you at the heart and so favor is afforded to Nehemiah not favor for himself Favor for other people. Provision is given to Nehemiah. And look at it. He gets a house out of it. Hallelujah. But that's not his priority. And look what happens when he's asked what he wants. He doesn't have the catalog list of things well rehearsed. The Bible says he looks up to God and he prays. And he says, God, what do you want? What do you want? You see... As you walk through this story over and over again, it cannot be surprising to us now that God could use a man who had already been trained to live beyond himself on a day-by-day -day basis to take that into a place where a whole nation is blessed by it. I can't catch my breath at how these small things become great things in the eyes of God. Stand with me, please. We won't do music, Amos, because it'll take too long. <laughs> Are you challenged by God's word? I am. Is it hard to hear? Yes, it is. Have you, like me, become slimed by a society that's preoccupied with self? Absolutely. Do you long for meaningful relationships where you can see another and love another unreservedly? Most assuredly, Pastor. That's what we're all looking for. Do you want God to take your ordinary and do something extraordinary with it? I hazard everybody will say yes to that invitation. And the key 
Open your eyes. You'll see that all around you, God has given you opportunity to live beyond yourself. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be you transformed. Why is it important that we're transformed? Because as we're transformed, we become transformers in our world. Okay? We have to be transformed to become transformers. And if you're living under the auspices of the culture of this world, you will never be transformed. Yes? Your mindset will hinder that, but you will never, more importantly, fulfill the destiny God's placed on you, and that is to become a transforming agent that changes society. God is looking for people who live beyond themselves. Is that you? Is it you? Lord Jesus, I've said a lot, but I pray that what's for us won't go by us. And where you want to speak, you will keep speaking. And what is opened up in hearts will stay opened up, Lord. And what we found distasteful or difficult, we'll not dismiss it until we have truly brought our hearts before you in humility and said, God, are you trying to say something to me? Have I lost some of my clarity about these matters. And God, more than anything else, we say in our songs and all that we do, we want to be like Jesus. And this is actually being like Jesus. This is what it looks like. Show us people we can't see right now that we need to serve. Open up things in places where we go, Lord, where we're so familiar we don't even notice the needs. Show us what you see under the surface, what's going on behind the scenes in people's lives. And may we be courageous enough and bold enough and keen enough to be like you, Jesus, that we'll step beyond our own sense of comfort and we'll say, God, I want to bless this person. I want to bless this man. I want to bless this woman. I want to bless this child today. Give me something, God. Give me bread from heaven so they can taste and see that you're truly good. Give me something to give away, Jesus. I want to be a giver as well as I am a receiver. I want to be generous as you are generous with me. We ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you want prayer, please stay at the front here. I'm going to wait for a little while longer, and uh, we're going to pray for you. I particularly want to ask you, is there anyone here today who wants to give their lives to Jesus to come and speak to me, please? I think that's an important invitation to set out there. For the rest of us, have a great week. Thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for the celebration of my birthday. And may God bless you.